A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the AEW Dynamite Review. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by the Dadly Boys of What Culture, Michael Hamplot and Michael Sidgwick, here to review everything that happened on last night's episode of AEW Dynamite Blood and Guts. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from, for daily wrestling podcasts where we not only review AEW Dynamite, but also NXT, Raw, SmackDown, pay-per-views. We have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a round of the week. Complete with a bloody good quiz, of course, on WrestleCulture. As I said, though, joined by Hamlet and Sidgwick to review Dynamite, and in particular, of course, Blood and Guts. And Sidge, it's all right, wasn't it? I personally loved it. I can, however, understand the complaints and maybe a slight air of deflation. I'm going to be the generous guy on this because I loved the match. The finish was what it was. We'll delve into it in more detail later. Um, realistically... They can be glad following last night that revolution happened and unfolded the way it did because it's given them kind of a generous curve. Um, so I guess that's an indirect byproduct of a disaster. Um, but I'm high on it. And the reason being is that I love the two hours. You got great promos, a phenomenal angle, oh. and a phenomenal main oh. event. Um, ultimately, with that blood and guts match, they my succinct take is that they did the harder thing more effectively than the easier thing. And I can't not admire yeah. just the goddamn tone and atmosphere. Like, I felt nothing like that for when it reached its peak. I felt nothing like that in terms of the vibe and the animosity and the tone in like literally years of watching pro wrestling. Um, but yeah, I can understand if people were left somewhat underwhelmed. I, I love the show as well. And I loved the, the main event. Um, and, you know, I can... I, it, I can see people's issues with it, and I'm probably just going to steal your two's takes on Twitter because you were both uh, being bonkers and staying up all night long watching it, understandably. I've, I don't know how you got back to sleep after that show, if I'm perfectly honest. But I I think I saw as well, uh, Adam Pacitti was tweeting like, sorry, what do you want then? You want a 50-year-old man to take a legit bump onto concrete or whatever? I thought that was pretty bonkers. I think my issue with the show, I was slightly disappointed with, with Dynamite Hamlet because it's not as good as next week's show. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll get to that. I mean, what you've said there, this is not to pin anything on Adam Pacitti, but that's a, a commonly held take across Twitter last night, and I assume this morning I haven't checked, but um, I don't think that was my personal issue with the finish. Mm -hmm. Safety is better than what happened to Matt Hardy, for example, all out. So, like, just to cover that now before we get into a longer dissection, which I know we will at the end, and we'll all get our, our turn. I think that slightly missed the point of people's issues mm -hmm. 
like a couple of issues with the finish. Um, yeah, like I'm not going to be as generous as Sidgwick, but I completely agree with the point you're making uh, about the earnest quality of much of the main event. This was a very, very schizophrenic dynamite for me because a lot of the show I didn't enjoy. The highs were some of the best I can remember in recent memory, like going back half a decade, probably. I felt emotional as the inner circle entered. They'd done such an incredible job of creating that atmosphere. The, the pinnacle were there in their white gear. The music was blaring. The crowd were going nuts. Like there was so much of the things I loved and wanted. And then the first 20 minutes or so of the Blood and Guts match just capitalised on that magnificently in a way that like the, the NXT reboots never do, in the way that the bad WCW ones failed to. Um, nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. Um, the booking of next week's Dynamite, the way they arrived at some of the matches for it in that little section, as you say, like next coming up on next week's show and you're like, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Like you're just going and going and going and going off the back of an unbelievable and dare I call it like a mini promo train as held by Tony Schiavone by the cage, not an interruption one, but like the way they set things up through that, like God tier booking, God tier pro wrestling booking following on from like, and we'll get to it. An hour of dynamite. I didn't think was particularly strong. Like, I, I was so up and down on the show. Like the highs were just some of like the best I can remember. Like very weird presentation. Much of that is down to the high expectations AW set. And that's a good thing. That's why we're still going to be excited next week. And that's why every single time, like I'm going to feel obligated to do one of these tweets when they do the graphic of all the matches. Because you look at it and you'd be like, how's this not a pay-per-view? How am I not dropping $50 on this? You know, like it's just, uh, I, I'm in like admiration of the successes of this show whilst feeling like I want to be slightly critical of the stuff that I didn't think worked. Well, let's dive into it and uh, well, we'll take it apart. I don't know whether this is just me paying more attention, wanting to be wide awake watching this show, or whether this was the first time, but the parental discretion advice thing that flashed up before this show had me rubbing my hands with glee. I'm not sure if that's happened before and I've just not noticed it, but I was very much like, oh, here we go, lads. Uh, the show started with... Uh, <laughs> With John Moxie and Eddie Kingston versus Kenny Omega and Michael Nakazawa, although it wasn't that to start off with because it was Don Callis talking about how Michael Nakazawa <laughs> comparable to the, well, great Japanese wrestlers of, of the past, I suppose. And he said, unfortunately, Kenny Omega can't be here tonight. So he's just going to take him, take Moxley and Kingston on by himself. Uh, that wasn't the case. Moxley and Kingston, as they were making their entrance, were jumped by one Kenny Omega. But... You know, we're going to have to try and break this this show down into separate bits. So I'll start, Sige, with that promo. It's just a magnificent gag, an absolutely great gag. I love the threats. I love the way that Kenny Omega is playing with the idea of doing sports entertainment because it's consistent with his caricature character of what he thinks it's what he thinks he has to do to be a star on American TV. I genuinely think there's layers to this character and I think it's absolutely magnificent. This is another extension of that, but Don Callis putting over Michael Nakazawa as Tanahashi level was just expert, expert heel stuff. I loved it. The match, which we'll get into, uh, not so much. Uh, yeah, let's get into the match. Uh, we had, as I said, the, the jump start effectively. Moxley and Kingston uh, brawl with Nakazawa and Omega to the floor. They hoid them into the barricades. They double-team Nakazawa. 
Kingston hits a kitchen sink, I believe it's called. Omega breaks up the pin. In the midst of all this, the official's been distracted. Nakazawa low blows Kingston, tries to choke him out uh, and takes control. Eventually, it's Kingston and Omega in there. And uh, Omega's chopping Kingston. Bad idea. He suddenly realises, remembers where he is, Eddie Kingston, and just starts battering him. Uh, Omega goes to... uh, Goes to hit, well, here's the first part of You Can't Escape. Goes to hit the moonsault. Uh, Kingston dodges it, hits a running clothesline, tags in Moxley, who comes in, repeated boots to Nakazawa in the corner. <laughs> Nakazawa flies up and gets it with a suplex and a pile driver straight away. Uh, Moxley's got a choke on Nakazawa. Kingston stopping Omega getting involved, offering, and then offers him the chance to, to come in and save his mate. And Omega goes, nah, you're all right, thanks. Walks off. Uh, and they double team Nakazawa with a clothesline half and half suplex for the one, two, three. But that's only half of what happened because post-match, out come the Young Bucks. I believe Shivani described Matt as being dressed, dressed like a shower curtain. <laughs> Uh, they, similar to that, so he wants to watch his mouth. Yeah, <laughs> they, um, they are jaw jacking with with uh, Kingston and Moxie, but that just allows Gallows and Anderson to come in, attack them, hit a magic killer. Matt Jackson hits a super kick and then uh, sits up on the top rope, uh, Eddie Guerrero style. Omega comes back out. He's got his bloody personal cameraman Brandon Cutler there. They hold Kingston up. Omega hits him. Uh, with a one-wheel angel, and Nick Jackson counts the three counts. Uh, Hambler, your thoughts on the match and the post-match? Um, bit, bit bland, bit samey, all of this. I've never said this on a podcast before, and I hope never to say it again. I thought Kenny Omega's execution was a bit off last night. Um, as amazing as he was behind a microphone, as he was, like, bizarrely off in the ring, it just... The match didn't particularly work as the extended angle, which is what it was, let's be honest. Like um, Omega ducking Moxley and Kingston as a way to transition them to the Bucks match wholly. Now, I feel like that's the last interaction of Kenny Omega and John Moxley specifically, and that can't come a moment too soon. Um, and I just... This was fine, but it it lacked like a certain creative energy after the intros that... AW has made its identity. There's like it's something we love to talk about in the previews where we like we try and come up with like ideas of what they can do with characters, and then typically they do even better ones on the show itself. And we marvel in them the next day, and then we go again the following week. And it's such a joyous like feeling being a fan of this product because you get that sensation every single week. This was sort of the opposite. I think if we'd have donated 20 minutes of discussion to this instead of Blood and Guts in the preview, we'd have probably arrived at better things than what we got here. There was a certain WCW in 1997 energy to the elites beat down. As funny as it was having Matt hit him with hit him in the face with the shoes, then take his shoes off to do the super kick. Like I liked how different that looked, but the rest of it just felt quite flat and like I'm over so much of the elite versus Moxley and Kingston that I'm glad we're finally going to get it drilled into the tag match because I think that's where the money is. I just, yeah, like I struggle to feel much for any of this because I felt like I've seen a lot of it before. Yeah, when you were doing the rundown there, the recap, Wilborn, I was thinking to myself, yeah, I enjoyed that. Yes, that was good. That was good. Oh, that was good. Yes, that made sense in terms of the characters and how they should be interacting with the Michael Nakazawa and yet the experience of watching it, yeah, flat is the word. I don't know how else to describe it, really. It's not particularly good insight or audio, but yeah, it was just flat. I thought this would be like really brimming with ideas. 
and I didn't really get that. Um, the ideas that we did get, yes, they were nice enough, but um, to half echo what Hamlet's saying, like Omega, I don't think he had an off night as much as he knew he didn't really have to do anything because it wasn't part of the story. It was Moxley I was left underwhelmed by in this match, and I hate criticising John Moxley because he's so great at this difficult role of just being a hero and just the guy you want to be. He needs to tighten up those knees. They look bad, and it's like this thing that no one wants to admit. The problem with John Moxley that nobody wants to talk about. Mm-hmm. Those knees look bad. People will let him get away with those bad knees because it's John Moxley, coolest guy you want to be him. The, like the probably the best human being in wrestling, other than the Qatar money, which is pissing me off a little bit. Uh, and when you get a match that doesn't hit elsewhere, something like that gets exposed. Like his knees looked bad. Um, I did, however, love. Nakazawa, Nakazawa's the star of this match. Mm. I loved how he did the fire up and was doing this lariat. It's like, it's Michael Nakazawa. It's going to have knee effect. That was funny. That was genuinely funny. Um, I also liked Kingston's response to Omega chopping him. Mm. I really liked that. I got the smallest glimpse of a very good singles match there because he was just looking at it as, he was looking at Omega as if to say, video game playing dickhead. You can't mm. fight me. I, I will fight you back and I will do it better. Um, so it was a really nice glimpse of that dynamic, but yeah, this was just a bit of a flat thing. It just leads nicely, I suppose, Sidge next into what seems now to be an inevitable tag title match at um, double or nothing because he's got they've got screwed by the elite again. Yeah, I like how it's segued. I really think they've done an elegant job. If you consider that they weren't, there's no way to go after um, the exploding ball by a death match, the finish. Horrendous as it was, and nonetheless tied Moxley and Kingston together, for which we should all be grateful because even on an off night or a drab night, the entrance is still absolutely tits. Mm. Absolutely tits. And the way they've segued from Moxley versus Omega and they've sprawled it out and they've now finally gone in that direction. I think that's really good booking. I'm higher on it than Hamlet, obviously. I think that's really good. It's the direction that's been teased. It's more or less been made explicit now. Um, but this is the worst. I've loved the super release of late, and this was a night where, yeah, they were okay, apart from Kenny Omega with his weld. <laughs> um, speaking of double or nothing, we find out that it's been confirmed Britt Baker will challenge Hikaru Shida for the women's world title, uh, at double or nothing at the end of this month, and then it is Cody Rhodes versus QT Marshall. Didn't QT do well, I thought. Uh, Cody attacked him before the bell. Brawl immediately starts. Uh, he goes to whip Mar- Marshall with his weight belt. Referee stops him. So in the midst of all that, Marshall hits him with his own belt. Uh, lots of counters. Arn Anderson has a sort of little powwow with Cody. So Marshall comes out, gets in Arn's face, lays a hand on him. Arm snaps and strikes him back, gets ejected from ringside. Um, they both go for a for a crossbody, uh, take each other out, they exchange right hands. Uh, Cody goes for a sunset flip, and in words that only British listeners will probably understand, kegs Marshall gets his ass out basically. Uh, hits a DDT, hits his moon salt for a two, goes for a disaster kick and a Cody cutter, uh, but Marshall hits. His own move against him hits him with a crossroads for a two count, picks up Cody for a buckle bomb, sets up for a tombstone pile driver. They reverse, they reverse, they reverse. Cody hits one, gets a near fall for that. Marshall walks straight into crossroads, just kicks out. Cody looks at him, 
and locks on the figure four for the submission victory. I don't know where in this match Cody got busted open, but he did get colour. Um, but uh, maybe not in the way that we were pessimistically suggesting yesterday. Regardless of all that, immediately afterwards, as we did book yesterday, Anthony Agogo comes out, hits him with that brutal gut shot, and then, God save our gracious queen, uh, drapes the United Kingdom flag over him, uh, just to really solidify that point. Sige, what did you reckon to this clash? That was great. Like, yeah. Not like the four-star-plus level match, but for a compact TV match, I thought this was really, really well worked. QT Marshall is great at feeding. Like, he's great at feeding. You know he's an old pro. Um, what I loved about this match is that it was a near-perfect second TV match in a few, particularly this one. You've had the exhibition where Cody didn't want to patronise him. Um, he didn't want to hurt him. He didn't want to strike him. He just wanted to wrestle him. That's obviously completely evaporated now that QT Marshall's turned heel. This second match nailed the idea that these two guys who are really close friends, who don't just know each other's styles, they train each other's styles to like a factory of students. So they had the plot thread where they were countering each other's stuff. And it's like, it's a, it's becoming a standard in pro wrestling and it has for some time. But I really bought it here. Like I truly bought it given their chemistry and the dynamic and the way the storyline has all sort of been laid out at this point. And I thought it was all wrapped around this really compact, tight, fun, dramatic match that didn't go too far with its kickouts, but did just enough to position um, QT Marshall. Sorry, QT, I know a lot of people butcher your name, but that is how it isn't <laughs> pronounced. Um, yeah, it's got loads out of this. Thought it was a great second match, and I think the feud itself is great. This is a lovely accompaniment to it. And what I really like is that they've enough for the actual bloody brawl. God himself, there is a God actually, because he has intervened to make a Rhodes bleed on War Games night without <laughs> feeling like a very Rhodes thing to do. Magnificent. There is a God. So that's good news, isn't it? <laughs> I'm personally happy with that. I'm personally happy with that. And the post-match attack, again, further established the thing I've been trying to drill into people's heads. This is not a vanity vehicle for QT Marshall, who formats the shows and is in management in AEW and just wants to get over. He took the pin and Agogo took back the heat, the heat because it's Agogo's deal. This is Agogo's deal. That is stunningly and quite brilliantly obvious. There are two directions I can see this going in. I would take either. Either Cody versus Agogo at the pay-per-view and look at what Cody did with Shaq and given Gogol's relative lack of experience, he's the perfect opponent for him. And that's something very nice to say about Cody after a very uneven 2021 thus far. He seems like he's roaring back into form. Or, given we've got an actual stable war here, and we've seen wooden chairs and bull ropes in the mix, we might get a four-on-four bunkhouse. Yeah. So I'm happy with all of this, and I thought this match was... I just really enjoyed watching it. I, I love the post-match. Loved it. Um, I, I can't get enough of Anthony Agogo. Like, and this finish and the... Even better than me on Twitter and I hate him for it. <laughs> the... No. It looks like the Prince is going to be pissing hashtag blood and guts after this. Screenshot <laughs> of the... Oh, God. Oh, That's God. great, man. Like, and, I, like, he carries himself as a guy that completely believes this character as well. And that's something that it sometimes takes the people that have come from another industry into wrestling quite a while to do 
like to lock into being a pro wrestler version of themselves rather than being a celebrity playing the beam one. He I looks poor. I think realistically they need to recruit from genuine athletics all the time. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, he, he, a go go shack. Just get real athletes. <laughs> I think like I think like in comparison to how it used to be, I guess. Like it, where, like now, yeah, they're looking more born to do this than the rest of themselves. And Agogo is just a, another one of those. Wasn't quite as enthusiastic about the match, if I'm honest. Um, it reminded me, I saw Cody work quite a lot in the UK. And sometimes he was having these matches that you would be comparable to his like TNT title defenses. And some of them were the ones where you could tell he was still trying to shake off the three star Cody nickname. This skewed a little bit closer to that for me. I did like, um, yeah, I. This was like a really good showcase of what QT Marshall does really well. I thought he wrestled. I don't know how to explain this. He wrestled like a wrestling coach more than a wrestler. Like the transitions and the counters felt like he was trying desperately to think on his feet. I think there was one. So like he gets a crossroads and he goes to the diamond cutter, but that gets blocked. And then he like switches to like the buckle bomb and a tombstone. It just felt really natural. It felt like you could sort of see Cutie's mind working and trying to be like, I cannot, I cannot beat this guy. So what have I got? What can I use? Like all of a sudden. So I, I did quite like that, but I just, it's again, it's, it was a bit of an experience that I was looking for that I didn't really get out of this. But one, I do feel that I'll get out of the um, double or nothing payoff. Um, my first thought was the singles match, which I would be more than happy with. Um, but yeah, I like that. I like that four on four. I think we like. I suggested that like a stadium stampede that's probably too comedic for this now i think you can go you can go violent with it because there maybe won't be that much violence elsewhere on the pay-per-view so that might be the one to do the weapons in um so yeah i still like the angle more than i like this singles match me and andy came to the conclusion that they should just do road wild again on cody's bus for a pay-per-view <laughs> uncensored uncensored that's it sorry just uh, with a cowbell that they've got to run for the way. Oh, yeah. A go-go can just punch it, knock it clean off in the road. Um, right. Then we had a recap of uh, the previous week, the main event, which featured, of course, Darby Allen and then the incoming attack from uh, Ethan Page and Scorpio Sky and Sting and what have you. And then there's an interview with Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page. Uh, Scorpio Sky says he's the franchise now. They talked about Sting and his history. They said he was history, basically. He said his face paint is covering up age and injury. Darby Allen appears. He attacks them both, tries to get them, you know, get them taken out before the numbers of can catch up to him. Uh, hits a coffin drop off, off the bloody girder again. Uh, but they take him out with a trash can. And then, sweet Jesus, they throw him down the stadium stairs. A brutal bump. He's selling his arm afterwards. He does not look in good shape. He's not a man who you sense is going to want to defend the TNT Championship anytime soon. This took my breath away, Michael Sidgwick. Uh, like that, I couldn't believe what I was watching here. I was being terrified and exhilarated, but I was legitimately terrified. I can't remember getting this feeling. And it's so goddamn AEW of AEW to do something like this. We've kind of sat back on these views We've never even previewed anything to do with Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page because it's all a bit like, yeah, yeah, it's the interfering stuff and whatever. And yeah, you're doing it. And that's like, I don't think anyone cared. Within two minutes, they lit this bad boy up to like a, a ridiculous degree of danger. My goodness. They were on the upper deck of this open air stadium. And I screamed, legit screamed 
in my goddamn living room when they threw them against like the side, the edge. That's not a barricade on an on a level floor with some wrestlers behind it. Like you mistimed that bump. You mistimed that bump and Darby Allen's dead. Like they treated it's like I, you've seen that episode of The Simpsons where Mort Flanders dies. Yeah. yeah. Like that's where it's like Darby Allen <laughs> Flanders. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was so reckless. It was so ill-advised. It was so great. <laughs> it was so great. The coffin drop was amazing. Like, amazing. The bump down the stairs was just unbelievable. Possibly too good to be true. Like, I don't want to see anything like that again. I don't. Call me a safety police ball or you're like, that will heat up whatever they do with Alan and Paige for quite some time. I dread to think how they're going to escalate this and it's AEW so they will. But my goodness, this was terrifying, but so effective and so miraculous given how little I gave a toss about this combination combination of wrestlers a week ago. I love the weird sort of cell phone by Ethan Page talking about his history with Darby Allen and saying, oh, we go, you know, we go, we go back a long way, but no one cares about those matches that we had that no one actually watched. And so anyway, I'm just going to murder you, basically. I, thought, I, I really like that. I thought they were really strong on the promo. What do you think to this all hamlet and, uh, yeah, them destroying the TNT champion? Well, effective would be the word I would use because I thought they were <laughs> piss, weak on, piss weak on the promos. Didn't like the promos, especially Scorpio Sky. Like, I do not buy these yeah. guys at all so what you do to get around that is produce some physicality that forces you to buy them which is what you got in the throwing them down the stairs um this bump terrifying as it was this whole sequence which as Cedric points out was horrifying in lots of different ways coffin drop was awesome because it actually looked like a weapon that you could hit on the fly that was what I really liked about this one compared to like how sometimes it feels a little bit controlled oh, he does anything to his body no, he doesn't always have to like this felt like he needed to utilize that fearlessness to to hit him in that moment. Promo was lousy. Um, so what makes up for that is a bump as terrifying as what we got. It was well, dangerous as it was, it was well deployed. And I guess my wrestling brain can make sense of that. And again, draw that same kind of compromise between where I stand on these guys' safety and where I want just to feel passionate about the storyline. I don't buy Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page as threats to Darby Allen at this point. And, you know, it's because they've, because Darby Allen's a star. Like he's become a made man of late and just feels like leagues above these guys. Um, and yet, you know, as we'll get to, they're probably going to cost him his title. So he's going to have to take some revenge with Sting. Um, but it does feel like, feels like some jobbers have got pretty lucky throwing a guy down the stairs. Um, the bump was used really well because I, 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 I don't particularly buy the program, but I did love, love the physicality afterwards. Like I felt something for that. And mm. at first, like when the segment first started, I was kind of groaning a little bit. So that like, again, like that schizophrenic feeling, like a turnaround in the extreme from where this segment started to where it ended. As promised, Dr. Britt Baker was in action. She very quickly squashed Julia Hart, uh, taunting her. Hart gets in a tiny bit of offense. Baker hits the sling blade, gets the glove, air raid crash, goes to the pin, then changes her mind and obviously puts her in the lockjaw for the victory. Yeah. Natural good progression, this hamlet ahead of the pay-per-view at the end of the month. Yeah, I thought it was um, quite smart of them to put the graphic up first because it, like, I don't know, 
like it enhanced this squash, it enhanced Baker's entire aura, knowing that she was already the number one contender rather than this match being the one that got her the shot. I thought like completely changed, like in just a small way, but like changed the presentation of her coming out and doing the DMD constantly down the hard camera as if to say like, it's my spot now and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Like it kind of like informed that arrogance that she had. Um, they, they've got time, so I have faith they will, but they very quickly now need to find some heat between the two wrestlers, lest this become yes. a little bit of a Raquel Gonzalez type inevitability. You know, like Britt Baker's in that role where we're just, she absolutely cannot lose a double or nothing. She's the star, she's over, she's coming off the back of the Thunder Rosa match. It's it's all hers, the world is hers. But like, tell us a story now, directly with her and Sheeta, rather than it being about Baker's rise up the rankings. Yeah, I need the doubt now, because it's seemingly inevitable. But we like the Ra- Raquel Gonzalez thing. Yes, so, yeah. There is some of that, but at the same time, respectfully, Io Shirai was a more dominant champion. I mean, length of title reign, successful defense ratio, yes, but she has never been positioned quite like Io Shirai is. So Io Shirai in herself represented that doubt. Well, it's Io Shirai. It's not going to be that easy. This feels a little bit too inevitable, and I would like to see an actual story that casts doubt over what is a very inevitable finish at this point. Just a shame, as you alluded to on the preview yesterday, that she didn't get 30 seconds on the mic. Indeed. That was annoying. I do expect it to happen, of course, over the next however many weeks. And um, that announcement, which we'll get into, I guess, on another podcast, because there's so much to talk about here, of um, Hikaru Shida saying that her dream is defended in a f- sold-out full arena. That's happening. And it's going to... That dream's going to end on the same night yeah. that she goes to sleep to do it. Um that's going to be kind of heartbreaking, you would hope, because oh, just when she realized it, it's been shattered by this heel. That's the theory of the storyline. I don't feel anything like that yet. It's their job to make me do that. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Before we go any further, though, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stresses. They can be Big life worries or just, you know, little things like your favorite wrestler not being used properly. The thing is, when we keep them bottled up, it really can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. It is really helpful, too, for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy basically empowers you to be the best version of yourself. So why not give better help a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and best of all, suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash whatculture today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WhatCulture. We had a video from uh, Taz analysing Christian Cage and all the flaws in his game and saying how bloody brilliant Powerhouse Hobbs was, basically. It's popped me huge, uh, Sige. I'm not being funny, right? TNT should just become the AEW channel. You've got Dynamite. You've got the incoming third hour. You've got the name of the Cody Rhodes, Brandy Rhodes reality vehicle. You can have John Moxley and Eddie Kingston doing their buddy cop procedural <laughs> drama. And you can have Team Taz just filling the rest of the air time, just burying people's offense. But like on purpose. We talk a lot about how you shouldn't outright bury your opponent because who have you beat? But we know for a fact that Taz does in fact rate Christian Cage heavily because he wanted to recruit him badly. And he's doing all of this as a petulant little man who's incredibly miserable. He can bury and bury and bury and bury and bury Christian Cage now. And he should because it's unbelievably entertaining. Taz is so goddamn funny and he's not funny enough where his genuine menace doesn't translate because the kernel of the idea is that he really rates Christian Cage. He's just being a tit now. He's being <laughs> child now and it's amazing. This popped me daft. One of, legitimately one of my favourite things on the whole show. Taz is like vocal acting here was absolutely stunning because how he tried so hard during the Kaz highlights to keep his analytical head together. And then by the end, just sounded like Tony Schiavone talking about MJF. Like he was just stopping short of calling Christian a piece of shit in the middle of this like sort of video package presentation of, oh, I'm Taz, I'm the sports guy. <laughs> like, he's, like then you first get that little against my man, powerhouse Hobbs. <laughs> and then you from there, it just started to turn and turn and you feel this resentment. And all of a sudden, it's not a video package you're watching. It's Taz narrating the video package, getting angrier and angrier and angrier and looking like that little fella off. You know, anger in Inside Out, the little blockheaded guy. Like <laughs> the fire and the smoke comes out. Like, it just, just that fury coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. Um, that was what I kept visualising more than the, the Christian footage. Uh, this angle is awesome. This is absolutely awesome. Um... We talked about it from how it was bringing Christian back out of himself. Uh, and I think like what we're getting now is like, well, like Cage, Cage versus Cage after putting over Brian Cage's like, like again, that like lovely little reminder, like, you know, Brian Cage just beat the guy that was your so-called number one ranking guy. Like there's that little, that little mensch that Hangman Page gets that up, oh, failed again, have you? Oh, well, like Christian, uh, Brian Cage will take the match against Christian then. Never mind. Uh, like love that too. Um, Details. Great, great details work this. Loved it. It was followed by the uh, the number one contenders match. Did it, well, did the match determine the number one contenders for the tag team titles, that tag team uh, fatal four-way. I will never have anyone say another bad word about Max Caster rapping to the ring because he obliterated Brian Pillman Jr. You'll be on dark side of the ring in the future. You, you can't say that, Max. It's, it's just been on, mate. Come on. Uh, and it's low-hanging fruit, but the Young Cooks is funny. It's just straight-up funny, that. Um, I love that. The match itself, there was a lot early on of the unrequested tags, is the best way of putting it. People 
piling into one of the corners and getting tagged by someone else who they weren't intending to bring into the match. Big Brawl takes us into the first break. Uh, after that, Luchasaurus comes out, runs wild, hits both of the acclaim with kicks, suplexes, double, double choke slam on Varsity Blondes. Then he picks up Kazarian and choke slams him onto both of the Blondes who are on the outside now. More double teams from Jurassic Express. Daniels comes in to break up the pin. Um, Brian Pillman Jr. springs in, flying clothesline on Jungle Boy. Uh, Jungle Boy comes back with that rebound lariat of his. his. Uh, Wentz goes to the top. Daniels pulls him down. Daniels hits a flatliner on Luchasaurus on the floor. Kaz takes out Jungle Boy, gets rolled up by Pillman. Really good little near fall there. Pillman tries to, to take advantage, stops in his tracks. BME from SCU. They are the number one contenders. And we all knew they were going to be Sige, but an enjoyable journey nonetheless. That was all right. Can't remember a single thing about this match, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, it was like a moves with a Z match that didn't justify being a moves with a Z match because I don't think any of the moves with the Z were particularly exhilarating in that. I don't want to call it an in-house style, right? Because the range in AEW is just awesome. But there's a style that is associated with AEW Dynamite. It is this and... It just did not leave a lasting impression on me whatsoever. I kind of wish they'd done this on another week when time was at less of a premium so they could do little maneuvers in the match like highlight Jungle Boy more than they did or have some kind of spot in which Max Caster's a little bastard for all of it and then gets the Luchasaurus reckoning and the big pop. Just rushed. Gentleman's three, if that. Um, I like the fact that they did the match, why they did the match, the result of the match, what it all means. But yeah, it's just left me shrugging my shoulders. Yeah, same. Um, echoes of the opener a little bit in it. This felt a little bit bereft of ideas. Like it like lacked a certain creative energy. This was this was the sort of thing where, and again, like Sidgwick's bang right, it'd be unfair to like um like just like sort of tar AW with the same brush when there's so many different wrestlers working so many different styles but this did feel more like somebody had gotten hurt so it was like oh we need to send eight guys out there to go and have those eight guys match to fill 10 minutes when in reality it was in service of a pretty substantial angle um it was supposed to be in service of SCU like this should be the hottest SCU have felt ahead of the match next week in an angle that has been simmering if not very well built since the start of the year. And you could argue beyond that because SCU have been together all this time and Chris Daniels has got this long, like, tenured career. Um, it didn't feel like we were reaching the peak of that at all in this match. Um, I do wonder if the um, the format would have worked better if they'd have done one versus one versus one in, like, the tag team turmoil way, where you work up the rankings. Maybe, the, maybe that would have, like, inspired a bit more inventiveness, perhaps, than them allowing themselves to kind of, like, fall back into those multi-man tropes that this did um yeah a bit of a disappointment if i'm honest i wanted to feel more about scu's title shot but what they're going to do and like aw are brilliant at this but it doesn't help us when we're reviewing weekly episodes of dynamite they're going to do like an awesome road to or something that's going to have you on the hook for scu winning the belts and it's going to drop on monday or tuesday or something and you're going to oh great like this is this is fantastic but like, and this is not the first storyline they've done it with, but it's just the one that you know is present right now. It just feels like they've not really done it on route, and it's it's a real shame because the story is there. It's awesome. It's all in the DNA of this entire company, and they're going to rush to it in an, in a really great 
sit down interview thing for YouTube rather than on Dynamite itself. And I think that's like, that's just slightly letting down the wrestlers a little bit. Uh, one thing I sense that Michael Hamplett will really like came next. It was a video package promoting uh, Eugene Nagata challenging John Mox for the IWGP United States Championship. Lots of footage from New Japan, lots of talking ads from both men. Um, Moxie not happy at being called a punk by uh, Nagati. He said, once the bell rings, um, he's, well, he'll learn his, his mouth can get him in trouble. Once that bell rings, he's, Moxley has no respect for anyone. Hamplet, we get in the death rider next week. Oh, Christ, I've missed, like, I hope so. Um, and I don't know, maybe not, but, like, I've missed this so much, this being John Moxley selling a title fight in one promo. Um like to sort of paraphrase Brian Potter the things I'm going to do to you Um, just (laughs) that way that he juggles like we talked about it every time he did this in 2020 you find him on all the other podcasts wherever you get them but like it's just he'll make the opponent a huge deal he'll make himself a slightly bigger deal it's as old school as it gets it should be corny it's always awesome. This whole thing, like when the bell rings, I don't got respect for nobody. So hard to make that dialogue cool. John Moxley does it ten times out of ten. Um, how as well he spun, he spun the match away from being this thing that like wrestling. I personally think loves a bit too much now, which is when you've got like a legendary figure comes in. It's got to be all handshakes and hugs. And Moxley just thought, I don't really fancy that. Like I want to justify the violent things I'm going to do to you if we happen to shake hands at the end, you were going to have felt the full force of my fist first. And he kind of sold me on that as well. This was brilliant. Um, this is what John Moxley in this incarnation was very clearly built to do, was to sell sell you on fights with a, with a few weeks notice when there's a belt slung over his shoulder. Outstanding. Proper, proper pro wrestling sales work. Unbelievable stuff, this, considering that it was essentially... This is, again, I've been talking recently, because I often do, because we were invited to make the comparisons by WWE about the differences between the two goddamn companies. NXT, one of my favourite takes of my own, right? (laughs) For the longest time. I don't even think they do this that much anymore, but at the early onset of the Wednesday Night Wars, what they did was they didn't build matches they photoshopped match graphics and expected you to care about those matches because of the quality of the wrestlers involved. Even if there was an element of that with this US title defense, who cares? Eugene Nagata's come to AEW. It's amazing. But they care so much more about making you care that it's never just about that, ever. And even in like a three-minute, two-week build, this was like, it's just it made the anticipation even greater. Love John Moxley's sigh of resignation. Ah, uh, you know, I don't want to do this to Eugene Nakata. <laughs> I like him. I like him. But, you know, he's, he's a knob. So I'm just going to beat him up now. Like, great stuff. You juice up, heat up a match that was already, like, mouth-watering in the prospect of it. Just John Moxley's the boy. Do better knees. I'm worried about the knees <laughs> in this Nakata match. Uh, it just kept rolling for, for Michael Sidgwick because next we had a big announcement regarding the World Championship match at Double or Nothing. Tony Schiavone brings out Kenny Omega, who's there like, hey, who's excited for blood and guts, guys? You prick. Brilliant prick, <laughs> prick nonetheless. Uh, talks about he's got... Um, I thought he portrayed it as the after party to this promo. Yes. He's amazing. <laughs> sweet. See his tweet of like, yeah. I think 10 out of 10 show because uh, um, I was on it and Blood and Guts happened as well. So that was nice. Um, he's got Nakazawa there 
carrying all the other belts apart from the AW World title, which he's got around his waist. Uh, talked about collecting all this gold uh, and uh, asking about his next challenger for the AW World Championship. And Tony Schiavone announced it is going to be the two number one, well, the, the two top contenders for the belt, uh, number one and number two in the rankings. Pack Orange Cassidy match on next week's Dynamite to determine the number one contender for the 30th of May. Uh, and Omega said, well, Pack, well, you know, Pack's been me before. And uh, it'd be a hell of a match to, to face him. I'm looking forward to that. Basically saying, Pac's obviously going to beat Orange Cassidy. Pack, who's this bloody Orange Cassidy bloke? Orange Cassidy walks out um, and Omega laughs in his face, basically. Uh, he said, look, yeah, he pats him on the head. You, you, you good value for what you are in AEW. You, you feel good wrestler, you know, bit of a cult following, blah, blah, blah. But, you know he's never going to be real championship material here. I mean, look, you're copying me. You got what? Well, you got shades. I invented wearing shades. So I mean, it's still owned it in Cobra, but yeah. it's Omega. So it's fantastic. And he goes, so what, is, what are these? Uh, Ray-Bans? Oh, well, uh, do you know what? I'm going to take these off you for, uh, for wasting my time. Pops them on Nakazawa and he says, oh, and look at that. Michael Nakazawa looks more like a champion uh, than you ever will. And just sort of mugs him off and leaves. I'll, I didn't go into the bit that I know you want to mention, Sid, so I'm just going to pass it all to you here. Gwell. <laughs> G-W-E-L-D. Gwelled is his way of saying gold, and it's magnificent. This is all magnificent, possibly a little bit long, but I suspect that someone was in his ear saying, right, okay, I've got a tight format, a tight format coming up for Blood and Guts, so talk, talk, talk. So he did circle around some of the points, but I think there was a, a reason for that. I love this. I can understand the complaints, right? That it feels like, oh, it's going to get Kenny Omega and Orange Cassidy because that was more emphasized in the build and next week's match is a formality. I read them, got them, didn't feel them. I, this works as a double bluff. I'm happy with either match. I'm delighted with the match that is going to lead to the match because the first one was so incredible. Yeah. And they've the reason why next week's show is so stacked, incidentally, is because they care about giving the fans a great show, number one. Two, they did like a two-event pass. So they incentivized people to come for blood and guts, which they wanted the 2,500 or whatever they got there, to get into the, the next week's show, which is going to be live, not in the can. So they're altering the format. So basically, that Puck Orange Cassidy energy that was so scintillating at Revolution, you're probably going to get a close approximation of that. So that would be great. I didn't get the idea that, oh, it's pointless having that match. Because what Kenny Omega has been doing all this time has just been germinating ideas, germinating ideas. Christian Cage, Eddie Kingston, Matt Seidel. Like, he's been just planting these seeds for matches to such an, a, a hangman page such a great extent that you could feasibly see him go in any direction whatsoever. Me and um, Wilborn fantasy booked what's going to happen at Double or Nothing. Um, you can listen to it wherever you get your podcast from, Spotify, iTunes, probably a little bit out of date now, but that's good audio, so just treat yourself. And we were talking about the challenges, and I described Orange Cassidy given his placement in the rankings and his drawing power it's like a sleeper and it turns out that's possibly happening and me and Wilborn just went on a tangent for five minutes about oh my god think of the spots you can do mm. think of like him just going to sleep 
just missing a one uh, a V trigger, putting his hands in his pockets atop Kenny Omega's shoulders. I'm going to repeat this about five times when we get the actual match. Putting his hands in his pockets when he's on Omega's shoulders and he's trying to get them, trying to reach for his arm for the moment get Angel. And he looks and he can't because the hands are in the pockets. They can have the best comedy match of all time and make it a great wrestling match all the time. I'm thrilled with every single part and outcome of this promo. Yeah, um, wonderfully delivered. Uh, I, I did. I felt it was going long, but I was enjoying it too much to care. Uh, like I was, like I was thinking, he stood in front of a two-ring double cage, and I'll take five more minutes of him talking. I'm enjoying it that much. Some achievement, um, and I love uh, just like sort of to add to how we've arrived at Orange Cassidy versus Pack. What even more fantastic than we described it last week, booking the Brian Cage victory over Hangman Page was because um, obviously it would seem on the surface to be a bit unfair that Page has been shunted all the way down from that one defeat. But I was having a look at these rankings yesterday, like to sort of familiarise myself with them as to try and work out the possible connotations of what how the title match at Double Nothing was going to work. And I realised that Brian Cage and John Moxley both leapfrog Hangman Page due to their overall records rather than their 2021. So like as a 2021 records, I think like Moxley's like seven and one or something less than pages, pages eight and one. I remember that. And like, but their overall records are so much better because Hamman Page had a really terrible run, didn't he? And he's still trying to make up for that. And it's still hampering him now. Like if he hadn't had that rotten start to life in AEW, one loss here wouldn't have knocked him down to fifth in the rankings or wherever he is. But no, that's where he is. Goal difference. So he's lost with a week to go before they announce a number one contenders match. He's lost it completely to Orange Cassidy and Pack because he couldn't get it together once upon a time. And now he is like he's had to face this awful setback. Just when he thinks he's got his mental health on track, he takes this awful setback. And now we're going to worry, well, will this set him back completely? Will he ever get close to the promised land again? It's awesome. It's fabulous use of the rankings. It's everything. People get this. And it informs the buy rate of All Out 2021. I really just, hope we get this. It's just so rewarding. Like, the rankings aren't there to be this, like, perfect, impenetrable system because it's pro wrestling. It's not real. You have to be creative alongside the rankings. And this is how you do it. And again, like, one week before is the example of how you do it perfectly, of how you execute this perfectly. Brian Cage has gone above Hangman Page which is how he's kind of worked his way in probably to the Christian match. You could even argue that Angman Page has lost the second biggest high-profile match as a result of one defeat because of the demons of his past. Like, so, so rewarding if you give a toss. And that's without describing everything Sidgwick did, which is a frigging pack Orange Cassidy match in front of a crowd and one of those two matches being part of Double or Nothing. Great, 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 great. And I did that defeat, I should also mention, should probably have an asterisk next to it because he got power bombed on the stage before the bell even bloody rang but still yeah like, not not even fair not even fair yeah uh, I'm sure like we said we'll go into more detail going forward but I'll just mention the bit where Kenny Omega does his big running on the spot build to a V trigger and by the time he comes back off the ropes Orange Cassidy especially now what considering what happens this week has somehow got a pair of sunglasses on and that just stops him in his tracks that's yeah. <laughs> that's only if that gets the match and we don't know like as much as he, it felt like oh well they're just saying oh it's obviously going to be Pac and then it's Orange Cassidy I don't know. Like, uh, I cannot. Perfect double bluff, I thought. A perfect double bluff because you know this company's banked enough trust 
and currency now that if people are disappointed considering they saw the match graphic, this wonderful match graphic unfold in front of them, they'll know that, all right, if it's Pac, oh, but I'm going to get like a five-star match. <laughs> then they'll know that will do Cassidy at like fight at first or fight for the fall or whatever. Um, I mentioned earlier about you guys watching this live and then going back to sleep. I wasn't just talking about the MJF being stabbed with a sodding fork or all the mad stuff in that match. I was talking about trying to get to sleep after Miro said, let's see what happens when the man who doesn't mind dying faces the man who doesn't mind killing him. Because he came out, he had a contract, he announced he's challenging Darby Allen, who just got thrown down in stairs for the TNT Championship match next week. I mean, this is a... That's how you bloody reheat Miro, isn't it, Hamlet, over the last few weeks and with this? Christ almighty, man. Like, I feel like I need to do my own version of the how it started, how it's going meme for Miro, where it's just like I've got my hand over my face when he comes out and cuts a promo stood by Kip Sabian to now where it's like, put the belt on him. Put the freaking belt on this killer. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Again, let's go back to the Darby Allen bump and why that was so perfectly executed. Not only did it get over the match that Darby Allen will get his revenge on Ethan Page and Scorpio Sky, these kind of goobers, these goons, but it's just gotten over Miro as a killer because he's going to very cruelly take the title from Darby Allen next week in circumstances wholly unfair, but in a way that completely and utterly, I know it's a dirty word, but protect Darby Allen the right way. Darby Allen is going to fight through the fact that he was thrown down some stairs and like nearly, nearly beat Miro. He's nearly going to beat this guy who was like thrice his size and like full of all this rage and pent up aggression because he's been stood wearing a frigging Gucci tracksuit next to Kip Sabian for all these months and he just wants to tear it off and kill guys. Like, perfect. Just perfect booking. I love the promo. It is the sort of stuff that's going to keep you awake because if you go to sleep, Miro's going to appear in your nightmares. Um, but so much of how great it was was informed by a segment earlier in the show. They've done the work. Brilliant. And last week's segment. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is all, this is perfection. This is booking perfection. Incredibly deft in how oh. they positioned Miro as the biggest killer. And as was articulated in the line itself, Darby Allen is the corpse. Looks like <laughs> a corpse. he's going down the stairs like a corpse. He's effectively a corpse now. It's a killer versus corpse match. And it's going to be electrifying when, because they've established the rhythms of these shock squashes at this point, that's going to feel like that. It's going to feel like Brody versus Cody or Brian Cage versus Hangman. And then you get three minutes of a hope spot that's going to like make your mind melt. And then Miro in, you should protect everyone. You should. WWE has bastardized all the good words and the good practices. This is the perfect means of doing that. I'm dreading. And I know I shouldn't do this, but we're on Twitter a lot. I'm dreading the mm, burying your homegrown star for an ex-WWE guy. You were complaining <laughs> that they weren't pushing him. You were complaining last week that they weren't pushing him enough and that they botched him. I'm dreading it. I'm going to go absolutely game ballistic on that bird app. It, um, like I said, it's bad enough that you've got Miro versus Darby Allen. It's bad enough that you've got Miro versus Darby Allen after Darby Allen's been hoined down to the stairs. But as you alluded to there, Sid, it's even worse that you've got Miro, who beat up Kip Sabian so badly last week, a man who was his friend, that he has to leave and go and get surgery against an injured Darby Allen who just got hoied down some stairs. Like you say, he just plays into it perfectly. And then look there, this is the bit where they went, here's what we've got coming up next week. Jesus Christ. Darby Allen versus Miro, TNT Championship. Young Bucks versus SCU, AW World Tag Team Championships. 
Orange Cassidy versus Pack number one contenders match. We've got an interview with Jade Cargill. We've got a double or nothing announcement from Cody Rhodes. And oh yeah, we've got John Moxley versus Eugene Nagata for the IWGP US Championship. At least I said this to you this morning when we first spoke, Sige. They could be forgiven for putting their feet up considering their pay-per-view is, what, three weeks away? And yet here we are. They couldn't be forgiven for it because they have to sell a pay-per-view. And they have to build a pay-per-view. And this is such a miraculous... That's not miraculous that they're putting the work in. But this is their answer to the criticism of your roster's too bloated. Look at the state of that card next week and then consider who isn't on it. Yeah. Who isn't working it. MGF's not on it. Chris Jericho's not on it. Kenny Omega's not on it. John Moxley's not on it. John Moxley is on it. It's a, it, 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 Hangman Page is not on it. It's astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. Uh, TNA. Right. TNA did a worse job of selling actual pay-per-views when they used to work Wednesdays every week. It was like, buy the show next week. He'd have been a better job of that, and this is for free. Uh, right, here we are. We are at Blood and Guts. Before we get into the guts of the match... I got Hamlet. I would be remiss of me to not turn to you when they pinnacle worked walked out in that fucking gear, as did the inner circle, to just have a quick gear guy segment. Yeah, before we get into the guts of the match, let's get into the blood that raced into my penis when the pinnacle came out all in white. Um <laughs> I think I discussed as with Randy Orton, um mostly over the fact that heels shouldn't really wear white because it's just fundamentally the best colour for a big time pro wrestling match. It has become associated with the big stage. Like the big stars wear white at WrestleMania for their big moments and the pinnacle were wearing white. So the blood would look amazing. You know, I went off daft, um, but it, it they looked pristine and you want your guys that live on airplanes and like live the good life to look as pristine as possible before they're like bashed within an inch of their lives in the middle of a bloodthirsty cage match. So like I will allow it psychologically because there's almost an arrogance that suggests, oh, it's, these guys that are going to take the beating, not us, we can wear white. We're not going to get any stains on these clothes, are we? Like, So I like that kind of like internal arrogance that I'll believe. But let's be honest, is really just justification for wrestlers to look the tits. Like they looked unbelievable. Jesus Christ, Wardlow in that white singlet. Oh my like, day. And I've just said, put the belt on Mira, but can we put every belt on him, please? Christ almighty, like early days, big pop punk, Scott Steiner. Like, whoa. anyway, um, Equally as good, not equally as good, that's not fair, but almost as good with a prison inmate outfits. Um, people seem to really want the dead president's um, proud and powerful thing, which is so cool because they gave him it. Like, this wasn't that sort of, I do this all the time with WWE on Twitter. I'll just like try and will something to existence. I was trying to wheel Randy Orton in white trunks into existence for the better part of 20 years. And he's only finally done it when he's fighting a murder clown, right? Like people said this on Twitter this week because there was a good chance the wrestlers would just do it because it's just a nice thing that rewards fan investment and rewards what people want to see for a big night. So they did that. Um, Jericho's like, he's almost too cheesy to, to do anything serious at this point. But like what made up for it was uh, Jake Hager deadpanning it in overalls. Like he looked more like he was like going to do some labouring or something than he was coming <laughs> out of a jail. But great, all the same. Contrast was perfect. I complained about... Um, like, and I'll leave it here because I know gear is just one small part of this. I complained a few weeks ago about all of the guys wearing black because everybody was supposed to be evil. This addressed that complaint. Like, very stark visual differences between the two sides. Like, I think that genuinely matters, and they established that brilliantly. And I could not have been higher on, like, this match and this company in the Inner Circle entrance. Like, I won't forget how I felt watching all of that come together at the exact same time. This was pro wrestling hype. 
like performed to just inch perfect perfection. I, like this was impeccably presented as the the blood feud it was, and it even like I even feel like I want to go back and be a bit more generous about the weeks where I thought they were like beating down the pinnacle too much or rushing to this match a little bit too much because you only truly know if they've hit the peak as you're at it. And we were at this and this felt like the peak. Plus Tony Blanchard in a white suit. <laughs> Absolutely unbelievable. I don't want to skip ahead to my analysis, but I think there was another in-character reason why they wore white. Not just for the contrast, not just because of the blood, not just because it just simply looked tits. Mm. I think in-character reason for it. And we'll get to that when I get to the finish of this. Uh, as we, or as Sidge suggested, Sammy Guevara, Dax Harwood started the match off. Uh, Guevara immediately dives over the ropes to start the brawl with him. Uh, Harwood cuts him off. Spinebuster goes for a pinfall because you can't take the rest of the out. Hey, hey, hey. If Randy Savage can goddamn do it, then Dax yeah. Harwood's allowed. It's fine. I liked it. I thought it was very like this is this is the bare bones of him as a wrestler. I thought that was great. Um, they uh, they're brawling in the corner. They climb the side of the cage, balancing on the top rope, and then Guevara sends Harwood crashing between the ropes and the cage, uh, sends him into the the chain link fence. Harwood already five minutes in. It's the War Games rules. We know how long this match is going to go. Is busted wide in open. Uh, in comes uh, Sean Spears uh, as Guevara hits the springboard cutter. The chairman brings a chair with him. Uh, Guevara's trying to fight him off, gets hit with a spine buster. Spears is trying to set up the, the chair in the corner. Guevara fights back, numbers advantage, and then just a solid clunk with the chair on the head. Uh, I don't really know how to do this. I don't really want to explain the entire match and then come to you for your thoughts. So just feel free to jump in as and when you want. What did you reckon? It'll take you forever to recap it. Mm. Because one of the reasons why it'll take you forever to recap it is because in what wasn't even a decision because it would have been impossible to do otherwise. There was so much stuff happening as they often do in these war games matches that you don't, you can't capture it all. So you have to make your choices about which story bits to get over. So you can't actually physically recap this match. It's just impossible. But that adds to the chaotic illusion that this is a real fight. And illusion is the word. This was genuinely magical at its peak. I've long had the um, opinion that one of the reasons why wrestling can't be the peak big time pro wrestling anymore is that the general cultural identity of your everyday person is significantly different different to than it was in like 1970s and 1960s and the 50s when you had riots and they were pouring acid on Freddie Blassie and people were getting stabbed in Puerto Rico. It was this... The world is such a horrifying and horrible place to which we've all become numb that it can't elicit feelings. It's not just us being 35, 34, 36 year old millennials. It's just a general cult, like it's just a malaise of, all right, okay, well, how can you earnestly feel anything anymore in this horror world? That's one of the reasons, in my opinion, why pro wrestling will never reach the heights in terms of popularity as it did. It functions on heat. This is why I love something like Hangman Page's arc because it's far more textured and complex than the old things that used to elicit the old emotions and sell the old big matches. Somehow, these 10 men engineered a tone that I just didn't think you'd... They had no right to do this. They engineered a tone that felt like it belonged to a different cultural time. 
You could the, the, the hatred, the the terror. There were moments in this match, particularly when Santana was leering at the camera with that fork, and he was aiming it in MGF's head. The crowd was earnestly chanting, "We want guts." They wanted to see this bastard MGF disemboweled. <laughs> Something about Santana's facial expression that was so sickly that I thought, "Ah, oh, a gang of people want to kill someone," and the fans who are watching this horrendously that harrowing spectacle, want to see him die. At its absolute peak and a peak before the finish, which we'll get to, this was stunning in terms of the atmosphere it created. They measured perfectly the high spots against just the flailing fists. I loved the actual structure of the design. It didn't feel like the half comedic flailing bumps of, whoa, went to the cage and back. It felt like they were like, that just that foot made all the difference to add to the all-important plight element of the match. In terms of the spots that they did and with like outside of the pile drivers on the exposed pine and the flailing punches and everything you'd expect from a great war games match, there were two things that popped out to me quite literally. One was that Sean Spears doing probably the highlight of the match with that rope to rope Spanish fly. Unbelievable Unbelievable, but even better, even though it was less spectacular, was Guevara, who was awesome all night, um, doing the Van Terminator. Because if you go back and watch the formation of the pinnacle angle, Sean Spears decked him, put his head through a chair. If you're going to do a high spot in a match like this, where every high spot feels a bit contrived because it might undercut the atmosphere that you're trying to do, make sure it makes sense. I thought that was an absolutely perfect and earned high spot. There's just so much to talk about and there's so little time. I'm trying to think of my highlights. My general highlight was the prevailing sense of, holy hell, they've realized the old magic of the war games in terms of this tone and atmosphere. Um, just that legitimately harrowing visual of Santana and the Inner Circle ganging up with MGF with a four. It genuinely felt like, oh, Christ, I, they want to kill this man. I thought it was unbelievable how they somehow travel back in time, not to a spot or to a structure, but to a feeling. Unbelievable. The problem with the finish, not just in the execution, was that it went a bit theatrical. Maybe it was jarring. I'm going to be kind at the finish because I think it deliberately folded in two plot threads that they've been weaving at the start of this feud. If you go back to before Full Gear, before the MGF and Chris Jericho match when they were building it, Chris Jericho was putting MGF over. But he's also saying, you know what? Yes, you're a prodigy. Yes, you're great. Yes, you're undefeated. Yes, you're very entertaining. Yes, you draw ratings, but you're a bit soft. He, Jericho said, MGF, you're a bit soft. You go all the way back to that, and it informs the finish of the goddamn match, where he, in effect, doesn't care if he paralyzes this man, which is the opposite of soft. All of this has been themed on this big, grand chess game, between MJF and Chris Jericho. I'm happy to believe, and I'm pretty sure this is deliberate in terms of the story beat, that MJF escaping the cage wasn't an act of cowardice, wasn't escaping, getting his forehead mutilated with a fork. He did it knowing he had the nut shot in his back pocket, knowing that it was one last chess move, pretending he was in a position of vulnerability to get one over on Chris Jericho, and then they do the surrender spot. I generally think that was a chess move the last great chess move in this big game of chess. My problem with the finish wasn't the crash pad. 
I think a lot of the takes of oh, what do you expect him to do? I don't expect Chris Jericho to like take a flat back bump on concrete from 12 feet in the air. I expect AEW to film it better. Yes. That's what I, expect exactly. to do. I expect better smoke and mirrors from a working magic company, which is what this is, right? I expect far better smoke and mirrors. I liked the thematic purpose of doing it. I like how they've built towards it with two separate plot strands. My biggest problem was the way it was filmed and I was insulted with the idea of the sort compressed sawdust having like the the sticker of what the actual metal grates look like sellotaped onto it, if you like. Mm. Do not sell that to me as that. I'd rather it was just sawdust, compressed sawdust or cardboard or whatever it was. I would rather it looked like it did than be told that it was something it wasn't. But you know, yeah, it, that... it still would have sucked to take, but don't tell me that that is not cardboard. I'd rather it was cardboard. It would probably suck. I would have bite someone off for a month or however long Jericho was going to be away. Don't paint it like that. It's amateur hour. But I love virtually everything else. We'll run through some of the, it wasn't a spot fest, like you say, it was a war, this, but I'll run through some of the stuff that, that happened just so we've got it, a mention of it because these two these guys put their bodies through, through hell. You mentioned that the Spanish fly, Cash Wheeler comes in, uh, they hit a assisted brain buster on Ortiz. I loved the uh, the bit where Spears has got someone in a, a sharpshooter and Dash, uh, yeah, uh, Cash Wheeler um, hits Ortiz with a gory bomb and then that, that horrible Homer Simpson-esque sort of bounce between the cage wall and the ring as he goes to the guy, you say that gap in between. I don't know why that viscerally affected me more than people getting busted open or what have you. Um, I mentioned Ortiz came in with a chair of his own, I think. In comes Santana then. Um, they uh, he comes in. He oh god, for God's sake! It's like it was like Dash saw. I keep calling him this. It's like Cash saw Dax and went, "Oh, we're having a bleeding contest, are we?" Because suddenly, bloody Jesus Christ, they were bleeding all over the place. Uh, for the first time in a long time, I actually watched the picture in picture because I saw, oh my god, that's going to be Wardlow coming in. In he comes, the inner circle have taken out the rest of the pinnacle. They all try to gang up on Wardlow, but it's in Wardlow, so he takes them all out. He hoys Guevara into the cage, he power bombs Ortiz into it. Jake Hager, I really want to give a nod to Jake Hager. He came in, got a huge, huge bat. He runs wild. Uh, he puts an ankle lock on Spears who's tapping but the match hasn't started let alone it being over um, big strike exchange between uh, between Wardlow and Hager slamming each other into the into the, the chain link MJF comes in uh, the pinnacle hits a, uh, sorry uh, Spears hits a C4 on Guevara crowd really not fans of, of MJF um, and uh, MJF uses this to, to sort of Square up to Jake Bloody Hager only for Wardlow to chop block him. So it allow MJF to stand tall over him and taunt Jericho, who then comes in. They do the 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 war games. Oh, one team's on one side, one ring, one team's in the other ring. They come in, they brawl. Uh Jericho's using the bat, uh, like you say. Spears tries to climb out, climb up the cage or out or whatever it may be. Jericho just chokes him with it as we go to the break. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, during the break, the pinnacle have uh, exposed the ring that allows them to pile drive Santana and Ortiz onto the exposed wood. Um, 
or they were trying to, I should say, and then they that t- they turned it around and Guevara got to hit it. That was when we got the the coast to coast, the Van Terminator from Guevara to Spears. Jericho hit MGF with a bit of turnbuckle. Then was the in fork stuff. Oh my god. Jericho chokes out Wardlow. Wardlow fires up and then gets hit with weapon shots. And then I think during another break, uh, Tully takes out the official on the outside, unlocks the cage. And as you mentioned, MJF goes up there. He's begging off. Or is he actually just leading Chris Jericho to exactly where he wants him to be? Um, Jericho puts him in the walls of Jericho. Not shot. MJF reverses, puts him in the the arm break of the salt of the earth submission. Jericho will not tap. He's stamping on his arm. He's biting his arm. He keeps putting it on and on and on again. No, Jericho will not submit. Jericho with that beautiful diamond ring right between, uh, MJF uses that right between Jericho's eyes. Uh, Jericho is now also busted open. Welcome to the club, pal. Uh, and then stands at the top, threatening to throw Chris Jericho off unless they submit, unless they surrender. Guevara, who, yeah, it's going to be anyone in there cares the most about Chris Jericho. He's the one who surrenders. It gives the pinnacle of the victory. And then, as you mentioned, MJF just hoys him off the uh, the cell anyway. And with a bloodied face staring down over this fallen foe, he says, thank you, as they check on Jericho and the show ends. Hambler, I haven't had a chance to get your thoughts on any of this. It's all yours, mate. Um, I did stuff I loved about the rest of the match because, yeah, I'm going to be critical of the finish too. Um, I thought it was totally inspired that it wasn't just blood, but a total gusher in like the first minute and a half of the match, because it immediately lets you know that the bar is way higher than just guys going 0.95 meter, like, which was so important in like, I think establishing that tone that we were all desperately reaching for from this match. This had to distinguish itself from the rebadged NXT war games as being a fight. Um, And even even sort of like pulling back the canvas because it's been done. You can't even do that early. And blood was the answer. Blood was actually the answer. Right? Like I think AW used it too much. I do think it is still when used well, great. Um, I don't know. I might be a bore or safety police or whatever, but like, I think they go to it too often, but this was the exact right context for doing big blood early. Um, super effective. Sold basically every other introduction of every wrestler because you effectively waited for it to happen to them it was like christ you enter this and this happens immediately it's almost like it happens to you by default like and now you're going to enter the fray and have it happen to you too so i think that was where like so much of the dangerous energy came from in the entrances and if i'm honest i think the whole match peaked um when chris jericho entered and we had that first sprawling brawl that came as a result of five and five not the fight like the oft criticized standoff that nxt loves to do felt unnecessary there were absolutely ways to do the what fans expect from a modern war games meshed with the way the old war games used to really hit and i think that was probably a step too far i think that was almost a compromise too far for a for like an audience that doesn't need to be patronized with those kind of spots personally like and it's it's not just the finish that i'm critical of here this did something that i didn't think it would which nxt has done every time um there seems to be this misunderstanding of the match beyond, which even TNA in Lethal Lockdown didn't do this, which is that it needs to be in itself quite a long portion. It doesn't, like most of the guys should have been beaten half to death at this point, and you can wrap it in three or four minutes with the strength of the last guys, with the freshness of MJF or Chris Jericho. And instead, it was like the match was split into two. It was like, here's your entries, 
and then what was it all out assault it was called wasn't it here's your entries and here's your all out assault and i kind of wish they'd not fallen into that trap a little bit because nxt always does and it's like right right now it becomes like how like how much can you do because you've done all this in the build-up and now we're going to get to the big finish like i wanted that to be like a bit more of a short sharper shock like because i think that's where some of the most the older war games have been so effective and i just think so already felt like it was going long I didn't care about the commercials break. I, I wasn't watching on the Fight TV feed, so this wouldn't have mattered if you were, I guess. But um, I was watching on Fight. Had a great time. Yeah, I didn't care about the picture-in-picture picture at all until it interrupted that last portion. Yeah, because it felt like it was going very long, and it felt like the inner circle were having a, a comeback too many. Perhaps like it felt like they were kind of like having a, oh the inner circle are totally in charge, right? flip it again so they can get themselves back in charge when we come back from this next commercial break. Slightly awkward picture in picture. They had to deal with it. They're putting it on television. I, I don't hold it against them terribly, but I wish that they'd kept the end, se- end sequence shortly. Um, on the fin- But yeah, l- like loved, loved, loved so much of the like first half of this match, maybe even the first two thirds. My problems with the finish, I, like, I really like Sidrick's explanation and booking of that, um, but that doesn't change how deflated I felt watching it. So whilst there's a lot of logic to be found, I'll always remember feeling quite deflated by the end. Um, I had a few issues with it. I didn't like it. I didn't like Sammy surrendering for Chris Jericho. Like, I understand, right? It's going to go from inner circle to inner self. The guy that was always about himself is now about his inner self because he's on his own. Chris Jericho's gone. He hasn't got any leadership. Hasn't, like, this is probably a great angle for Sammy Guevara. And he's just wrestled the match of his goddamn life to kick it off. So brilliant. Like perfect like sort of launch pad for this. Um, partly because of how they shot it, which was proud and powerful climbing a cage and then having to get back down again. It's like climbing the frigging cage. AEW is a place of intelligent baby faces. Intelligent baby faces know that MJF's going to throw them regardless. Like, I, I respect the wrestlers' characters more on the show to not think that MJF wouldn't throw him just because they surrendered. He's a piece of shit. Tony Savani said as much on commentary. He was always going to throw him. Don't, like, I, like, people have said to me, I was critical of that and people have replied on Twitter saying, oh, it was a hostage situation. Well, it's not, because in a hostage situation, you're supposed to trust the guys with the guns to their head that they'll actually let the hostages go. Like, nobody should have been stupid enough to trust MJF. I, I simply won't buy that as a as an invested fan. So I didn't like that as a choice. But at least if you're going to do that, and I pitched this on Twitter straight afterwards, like, have Tully locked them all back in the cage? They're all just, like, there. I, like, there was a lot of the lying down and waiting to, to sort of further the stuff that was happening on top of the cage. And personally, I thought it was a little bit WWE to leave the cage. A little bit. Like, um, I also think people are massively missing the point of the criticism of this spot. Massively missing that. I don't know if it's a straw man argument or I don't know if they just haven't realised why people are upset about this. Christ, there was chair shots to the head and earlier on in the same episode, a guy was getting thrown down the stairs. This was nothing to do with danger. None of us are campaigning for a 50-year-old man to take a flat back onto concrete from a cage. Nothing to do with that at all. If you don't have the chops to perform a, like a big prop spot like that. Just don't do it. So directorially, they got it wrong in how they shot it, in how we got multiple replays. Is what we could see. Under the stage. Why not have him disappear from view like Brody Lee did? Right. Like, if you're going to, if, if you're going to do it, you have to do it right. Otherwise be prepared to be criticized. It's, it's, I did put this, it's not exploding bar by death match bad. Of course it's not. It's not an embarrassment, but the point remains the same. If you're going to do the big spot, you've got to do it right. Otherwise you're going to have to be prepared for people to be disappointed by the finish of your big match. And I think that's what's happened here. Um, yeah, it was the actual finish as well as 
the way that they presented the bump. MJF spent too long hot dogging. Chris Jericho was fr- like proper mid two thousand and four. Can't be asked Chris Jericho in terms of calling his spots and swinging his blade around. Um, took an age to get up the cage. Like he's fifty, fine. Takes a while, but give me action in the ring to disguise that that's happening. Like I don't want to think because they're so brilliant. There's so much. I don't want to think of AEW not being a strong enough organization to be able to do these concepts. But it does feel like two in a row where the idea has slightly overwhelmed them by the end. It was and I know they can. Yeah, like that like incredibly ambitious. I admire the ambition, but I do feel like that's two on the spin now where they've been overwhelmed by their ambition. And that's a real shame because much like the Omega Moxley match, like I, I liked it. I didn't love it. I liked it. But there was lots to enjoy that won't ever be talked about because of the finish. Um, Blood and Guts won't be party to that. People will remember how they felt about the majority of Blood and Guts rather than the finish destroying it. But in my viewing experience of it, it was taken down a peg by the end. And like, I, f- I feel a bit sad, selfishly, as a fan for that. Nobody, I, I just want to reiterate this, nobody wants to see Chris Jericho take that bump. But danger was everywhere elsewhere on the show. Present me something safe in a way that feels as dangerous as the actual danger. Just on the chair shots before we wrap up. One chair shot, I don't know the exact signs, but like three or four superplexes. Same oh, yeah. And chair shot to the head. So oh. if you're going to do them, do them only in this match. And it just yeah. added that air of transgression. It was such an inspired choice, which is so ironic. Early as well, wasn't it? Like uh, like first, second yeah, entry. Like class. Like uh, th- th- I'm not being critical of that. I'm really not like the... Yeah, like, it wasn't excessive. It used to be the big lunk-headed thing that you did to get a pop, but now it's been so long that they've exhumed it as this thing that feels like, oh my god, you should not be doing that at all. So you can't yeah. do it in moderation. Of course you can. Just quickly, how would you have shot that bump? Because I thought, he'd be like, bare minimum, if you're going to do it exactly the way they did it, you hold the camera on MJF as he throws him off, so he comes flying past the camera. And then you can maybe shoot it another way. That's the bare minimum for me of not showing the crash pad and the way, you know, the way he landed and what have you. But what, what do you reckon? I do like the Brody Lee suggestion from, uh, from Hamlet there. The thing about the Brody Lee thing is that if you look at that spot, it's deranged because they are, they just smashed him head first, knowing that it's not from a great height. So he's going to take a blow to the head, but it looks way worse than what Chris Jericho fell onto. I, and again, I'm not a prop designer. I don't have any experience of production. I don't know how feasible this is. You could have given Chris Jericho a pretty luxurious crash mat underneath a part of the stage gimmicked to basically be like a square. You know the tables that WWE have and AEW have? He could have taken a bump surely through those and underneath. Mm. There's something that looked better. Even if you do the exact same bump and, I don't know, just hide the crash map from view somehow. If, if some bumps come and all I'm that. woefully uninformed about all this. Yeah, like, again, that's it. Like, I don't know how you go about setting something up this, like, elaborate and, like, otherwise impressive. Um, if some butts and that, do, I don't know why they book this. I, I, I don't, they, I understand the need to write off Chris Jericho. I thought that was the, the right way to go. Keep it in the ring. Like, live up to every other bit of this match in terms of how violent it got. 
and just find a way to do it without a big spectacular bump that even if performed well might have left room to be critical of you know like, like even if this had gone absolutely perfectly and we'd not seen the, the one replay that ruined it or something like that there might have been people like me saying oh, i thought that was a bit of a wet surrender like just be lo- like you were so loyal to the old war games for such a long period and then something about you made you think we need to go super big and you know Cedric's narrative explanation i think is strong um but i'd still maintain that i don't necessarily think it was necessary in the context of this match like i don't think that particular escalation for the big stunt was necessary they can't change history obviously but I don't, there was there was surely a better finish that could have taken place in the cage mm. But finish aside, a hell of a match, hell of a show. We'd love to know your thoughts on Twitter at WhatCultureWWE. Watch there. You can follow all three of us. You can follow Michael Hamlet at... Michael Hamlet. Follow Michael Zidjik at... Um, Sidgwick. Follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at WhatCultureWWE. And make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling, wherever you get your podcasts from, for daily wrestling podcasts. We'll, of course, be previewing that mad episode of Dynamite next week. And over the weekend, myself and Sidge will no doubt be dissecting all the fallout from Blood and Guts and where we go from here but for now this has been the aew dynamite review my thanks to the dadly boys thank you for joining us and we will see you soon